to Kaki Malaki. This week we are joined by Dr. Dan Spencer. Dan is an independent historian from Winchester who currently lives in Oxfordshire. He has a BA in History from the University of Exeter and an MA and PhD from the University of Southampton. He is the author of Castle at War in Medieval England and Wales, Royal and Urban Gunpowder Weapons in Medieval England and The Castles in the War of the Roses, which we'll be talking about today. Dan, how are you? Great, thank you. Great to have you here. Thank you for coming on. We start off with everyone doing this by asking uh, our guests to summarise their book in 30 seconds. If possible, do you reckon you can have a go? I can certainly have a go, is it? Yes. Brilliant. Far away. My book looks at the Wars of the Roses from a different perspective. It traces the political and military events of the period, but its unique selling point is that it focuses on the role of the castle, primarily in relation to the military campaigns of the era. I argue that castles did play an important part in military operations in certain parts of the Wars of the Roses, and this role has been overlooked by previous historians. More broadly, I contend that castles continue to be regarded as an important part of warfare in the late Middle Ages by contemporaries. Oh, you got about 22 seconds there. That was a good one. Yeah, that was good. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> a lovely teaser as well. I'm ready to learn more about castles. Right. Yeah. So to begin, your book sets the scene for the purpose of castles um, from the Norman Conquest all the way to the 1450s. So what do you think, uh, for our listeners, could you summarise like the main takeaway points when thinking about the transformation of castles during this period? Sure. So uh, castles changed tremendously throughout the 11th to 15th centuries. So they're certainly not static in terms of their forms or functions. Um, this is probably most apparent architecturally. So the vast majority of castles founded in the early periods, say the 11th or 12th, early 12th centuries were constructed out of earthen timber. Some of these sites subsequently rebuilt in stone in later centuries, whereas others gradually fell into disuse and were abandoned. Uh, in the 12th and 13th centuries, the most striking feature of many high status castles are great towers, uh, commonly known as keeps, yeah. which were designed for public ceremonies and to dom visibly dominate their landscapes. Uh, but from the late 13th century onwards, uh, you have an architectural shift away from keeps to an emphasis on gatehouses. Uh, and this also coincides with a change in their layout. So many having a courtyard form. So you can see this, for instance, at Bodium Castle in East Sussex, uh, where you have buildings adjacent to the walls with further accommodation in the towers. And one of the reasons for this change in castle design was due to uh, a change in how these sites were used by their owners. So in the Middle Ages, uh, kings and nobles uh, very rarely spent much time in any one place. They were constantly on yeah. the road. Moving around a lot. In their estates, yeah. So um, to begin with, many castles were generally speaking left as shells with skeleton staff, with essentially items of furniture moved between these different places. But then throughout the late Middle Ages, uh, kings and nobles gradually became less itinerant. So they spent longer periods of time in a smaller number of places. Uh, so what you have is decline in the total number of castles, but those ones which are maintained uh, have greater resources spent on them. Mm. Um, and there's also a requirement for more rooms and they tend to be given to individual people. Yeah, um, it's a lot of money and a lot of effort wow. to upkeep lots of castles. Exactly, yes. So, well, mainly absolutely huge. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, and, and also I suppose the other thing I should really emphasise is that um, in the late Middle Ages you see a gradual demilitarisation of many castles because rebellions become less commonplace from the late 13th century onwards. Uh, the main exception to that really is in the border regions, so notably in the north of England, you know, along the border of Scotland, as well as in certain parts of Wales. So what about the rest of the castles in England during this time? We're doing that bit if they're not demilitarising. Well, yes, I suppose most of them are just simply because warfare generally happens, I suppose, less, it's less commonplace in the late Middle Ages. So 
you tend to have more of a focus on some of the other elements of castles, so their residential function or administrative or judicial. Okay, ones. very interesting. So we'll, we'll clarify for our listeners here as well. Um, we're talking about, obviously, the castles and the Wars of the Roses. We're talking about the Civil War of the 1400s, not in the 1600s. Can you give a bit of uh, contextualisation here, Dan, to those the, of the war to these castles? Yes, so the Wars of the Roses is a name we've you know, given to about a 30-year period in the second half of the 15th century. Yeah. And essentially, it's a series of dynastic conflicts between uh, the rival houses of Lancaster and York, the throne yeah. of England. Mm-hmm. Uh, traditional start dates, First Battle of St. Albans in 1455, and the end date is 1485 with the Battle of Bosworth and the yeah. victory of Henry Tudor. In terms of the causes, well, um, I suppose they're dynastic, so they go back to the overthrow of Richard II in 1399, and he's replaced by his cousin Henry IV, um, as well as various economic and political problems that precede the wars. So Henry VI was a weak king, his government was unpopular, and the English had recently been defeated in France, and this contributed to instability and feuds among the nobility. Now, there's different ways of dividing up the era, um, but I'm going to have an attempt of dividing up into about seven. So in the 1450s, you have uh, Yorkist rebellions, in which Richard, Duke of York, a cousin of the king, who had a firm claim to the English throne, sought to gain control of the government of Henry VI, and to be recognised as his heir. Then from 1459 to 1461, there was a fully-fledged civil war, with both sides experiencing victories and setbacks. Uh, York attempted to claim the throne for himself, but he was killed at the Battle of Wakefield in 1460, and this conflict finally culminated in the victory of his eldest son, Edward Earl of March, at the Battle of Towton, and his coronation Edward IV in 1461. Then in the 1460s, Edward IV faced rebellions from Lancastrians who refused to accept his, you know, his legitimacy as king, uh, particularly in the north of England and in Wales. And this resistance was only finally subdued in 1468 with the capture of Harlot Castle in northwest Wales. Then from 1469 to 71, hostilities resumed because the Yorkists fall out amongst themselves. And it ends up there being an alliance between Richard Neville, uh, the Earl of Warwick, known as the Kingmaker, who up until that point had been Edward IV's biggest ally and supporter, and the Lancastrians. Uh, and this led to Edward temporarily losing his throne in 1470, with Henry VI uh, briefly restored, then this re-adaptation of Henry VI, before Edward then returned in 1471, defeated his enemies at the Battle of Barnet and Tewkesbury, and regained his throne. Then from the period 1472 to 82, which is known as the second reign of Edward IV, uh, saw him firmly in charge on the throne, and uh, most of the mainland Castrians were dead by this point, so the wars were seemingly over with the Yorkists victorious, uh, and this allowed Edward to engage much more in international politics, with wars with France and Scotland. But then, the unexpected death of Edward IV in 1483 uh, once again caused problems amongst the Yorkists. Edward's brother, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, ended up imprisoning his son, Edward V, and claimed the throne as Richard III. Uh, but he faced lots of opposition to his rule, and eventually he was defeated and killed by Henry Tudor at Bosworth. Um, and then finally, from 1485 onwards, there were a series of Yorkist pretenders to the throne, 
Uh, and I stopped my narrative with the Battle of uh, Stoke in 1487, which is the last pitched battle of the wars. Did you say there that wow. someone had arrested their own son? Uh, sorry, I probably phrased that very... Uh, <laughs> 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 I, thought, I want to know more about sorry, that. Yeah, no, sorry, that, 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 story. Was, I love that it. was me um, explaining things badly. Basically, he <laughs> imprisoned his nephews. So right. In the ah, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I, know about I that. probably should have used use, like, no, commas and things. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> I was so yeah, engaged yeah. in it. Yeah, no, I was in, yeah, engrossed in that kind of whirlwind tour through the, the kind of... Yeah, so I know it's yeah, very, yeah, it's very complicated, yeah. It's yeah, complicated, well, so much... but very dramatic at the same time. Yeah, no, there is so, there is so much of this issue to, to digest, which is why we've had you on today to, uh, <laughs> to, to shed some light on that for us, so thank you. Coming back to castles, obviously, which is your main forte. Now, traditionally, I think in popular memory, castles are kind of being portrayed as the centre of medieval wars, but what you really home on that this isn't the case in your book, so during this period, what were castles actually used for? Well, I think the first part I'd make is that castles are very diverse. So even though we call them okay. castles, they're very different sorts of buildings. So uh, they incorporate a large number of buildings. These range from, you know, the very, the very large, impressive major royal castles, such as the Tower of London or Kenilworth Castle in Warwickshire, to much smaller ones owned by members of the gentry, such as uh, Bodium in East Sussex or Nunny in Somerset. Uh, so by the time you get to the Wars of the Roses, you have some castles which date back all the way back to the Norman Conquest in the late 11th century, and they've been subsequently rebuilt and developed over time, uh, incorporating you know, architectural features from different eras, whereas others were far more recent structures. Uh, but they weren't just diverse in terms of their size or architecture, but also in the ways in which they were used. So castles did have uh, military architectural features, but generally speaking, for long periods of time, they were rarely involved in military activities. So the Middle Ages were certainly not characterised by constant warfare by any means. Instead, they were often used as residences. So whether for members of the royal family, um, the aristocracy or for the gentry, so rather than being austere fortresses, many places were luxurious and designed for the comforts of their uh, owners and mm -hmm. guests. And castle building and refurbishment was really a good way of showing off your wealth and power. Yeah, that's something really lavish, really impressed the guests when they come around for dinner. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Oh yes, yes, certainly. Um, and this is really important in a society in, in which castles, you know, along cathedrals were often the biggest, and most imposing structures in the landscape. Others were used as estate centres as opposed to residences, so um, where officials in the employ of their owners, uh, such as constables or stewards, would manage their estates on their behalf. In terms of royal urban castles, these frequently had an administrative and judicial role, uh, where the sheriff, who acted as the king's representative in the counties, was often based, and which were used for administering justice and for holding prisoners. And some castles had multiple purposes. So to take a really unusual example, the Tower of London, uh, this operated yeah. as a royal fortress, residence, armory, mint, prison, and the site of a menagerie with lions. All in one. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. So that means everything. So I think the best way of thinking of them is really as these were buildings owned by members of the land owning elite, which sort of reflected our, our aristocratic identity and were used in different ways. Yeah, you said a minute ago about like um the, the castles being like the dominant feature of any landscape. How much was that, would you say, was that like a status thing as well? Like they wanted to be known and seen? Oh, I mean, definitely, definitely, yes. Um, so I mentioned, I went back, I mentioned earlier keeps. I suppose that's a very yeah, official yeah. one. because They're basically tall and thin buildings, which you, you can see for some uh, distance away. I suppose right. it's hard in the modern era to have really comprehend that because we have so many tall buildings um, yeah. skyscrapers and whatnot yeah which obviously a lot of the time they're built for people to kind of showcase their wealth and like mm. you always going to be the kind of the tallest structure in somewhere like london um, exactly yeah. yeah 
was there any other like castle competitions so say one per like set of people had built one really big castle and then the others are like no we're we're gonna beat you and make a better one <laughs> was there anything ever like that um yeah i mean i think certainly <laughs> perhaps not on quite the same stock still but yeah um <laughs> i think certainly competition between you know um magnates and members of the gentry um, I can't really think of any, you know, I don't think it perhaps came to, you know, so much people building castles next to each other and trying to um, outdo <laughs> each other in the size, but um, I think that certainly was an aspect of it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So the strategic uh, position is obviously, obviously we'll take this back to military history, get into the, the nerdy, the nitty gritty bits of the, the military stuff. Obviously for castles, holding that strategic uh, location is, is essential or can be essential in a conflict. Just to name a few, give a few examples to our listeners, what would you say were essentially the best locations for a castle? Was there any that stick out to you and think, yeah, they had a proper good position there, that worked quite well for them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think in terms of military terms, the best locations really are those sites that have uh, natural defences they can draw upon. Yeah. Uh, those that can be resupplied easily and those which have a good geographical location. So certain castles certainly took advantage of um, natural defensive features. So Bamborough Castle in Northumberland was built on a volcanic rock outcrop. Yeah. Uh, so it's difficult wow. to, I suppose, to, to approach it or to undermine, undermine its walls. Uh, whereas the ability to fly castles in wartime was you know, crucial, um, particularly by sea. So you see this very much as a feature of the great Edwardian castles of North Wales, mm. uh, founded by Edward I in the late 13th century. Yeah. Most of these were located close to water, either the sea or uh, river, so yeah. that goods could be brought in by um, ship. And at uh, Rutland Castle, um, the adjacent river was even dredged and straightened to make it navigable for shipping with a fortified dock. Um, in terms of geography, uh, the main reason why Harlot Castle in North Wales, which I mentioned before, yeah. in Lancastrian hands up until 1468, when the rest of Wales had been conquered by the Yorkists some six or seven years earlier, was essentially because it's such a remote and difficult location to get to. Right, uh, yeah. Quite a big effort. Um, conversely, uh, some places were in some ways were quite difficult to uh, hold due to the locations. So uh, the siege of the Tower of London in 1460 illustrated that it Effectively, the tower couldn't be held against the inhabitants because if the citizens of the city so wish, they could isolate and blockade the castle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so, I, I like the idea that they someone just built their castle really far away. They're like, ha, now no one can get to it. And they're like, oh shit, how are we going to get stuff to it? Because it is a nightmare just to resupply when you think about the actual logistics of it, isn't it? It's all these things that we've got to go into it, you see. <laughs> Many things. Yeah, it's not an easy go running a castle, clearly. No, not at all. <laughs> also, I've got now got um, Ed Sheeran, Castle on the Hill, stuck in my head. <laughs> Shout out. That's only down the road from me. <laughs> It's a lovely castle. Is it? Oh, I didn't yeah, know. I've never seen really, it. Yeah, Fram- a lovely castle. What you castle see... is that song about? Uh, it's Framlingham Castle. Framlingham, Dan, you yeah. might know a bit more than me, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I remember we went there on like a school trip and it's really nice. It's just kind of like, I think the castle's in the middle, but now it's just kind of like, Dan, I don't know my technical terms here. Is it a fort? <laughs> What I'm, I'm trying to do the motion, like what's the point around it? <laughs> I can see Olivia just doing wild hand gestures now. Just trying to explain it. Emote, emote. Well, it, it's like on it, it literally is on a hill, and then like the remains of the castle are like that, if that makes sense. There's nothing in the middle, but you yeah. can walk around what used to be hmm. the outside of it, yeah. and it overlooks Framlingham. It's really nice. Oh, so Ed, yeah. I can see why Ed thought it's romantic setting, so at least. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so Dan, I kind of wanted to, you've brought up sieges before, um, 
and with sieges i kind of get like a real bit of game of thrones vibe going on here um but to clarify to our listeners if sieges during this period were they like that or not you know are were they as common as we think uh kind of what's happening in terms of castles are we going to imagine john snow is defending it or not (laughs) (laughs) over in game of thrones for all of our listeners (laughs) Well, there were no dragons involved for a start. Uh, <laughs> not even a whale? <laughs> Perhaps not literal dragons, no. Uh, yeah, I mean, that said, although you know, Game of Thrones is a fantasy series, which I'm a fan of, I admit, um, with fantastical elements, you do see some aspects of siege warfare which have parallel to medieval history. Okay. Um, so, for instance, in the book and show, uh, the picks, you know, attempts to storm castles and cities, uh, such as King's Landing, but you also get others being, let's say, blockaded or starved and surrender, such as uh, River Run. By the mid-15th century, warfare had certain conventions under which combatants, generally speaking, operated. So, typically, sieges were seeded by summons to surrender, with heralds being used for this task. Uh, the carrot being that if you surrendered under terms, then, you know, you've got your life essentially would be spared and you could often switch sides. Whereas the stick was, if you offered resistance, uh, then you ran the risk of being killed out of hand if a fortress fell. And the main tactic used in siege warfare was actually to blockade castles. So surround them okay. and cut them off from supplies. Yeah. Uh, as it's avoided the prospect you know, of attackers suffering heavy losses from direct attacks. Uh, and this tactic often prompted defenders to surrender under terms, because unless you had a realistic prospect of being relieved by a friendly army, effectively, you know, eventually you're going to run out of food. Mm. Yeah. Um, and it's partly for this reason that full-scale attempts to storm castles were comparatively rare. So the storm of Bamber in 1464 was a very rare example of this, although sometimes there's evidence of uh, assaults being used to pressure garrisons into entering into negotiations, such as uh, Annick. In Northumberland in the summer of 1462 uh, and artillery was often used to intimidate garrisons uh, but on the other hand there was um, it wasn't artillery wasn't always used uh, so for example in the winter of 1462 the Yorkists were um, maintaining the sieges of three castles simultaneously in Northumberland but despite the fact they had a large army and a large artillery train they were actually quite reluctant to use this artillery to uh, speed up the process as they didn't want to damage the fortifications of these castles. They want to capture them intact effectively. Yeah. Sometimes you have uh, sieges leading to battles taking place. Um, so Scottish uh, sieges of Carlisle, so the Scots were allied to Lancastrians at this point, uh, in 1461 and uh, <laughs> Norham in 1463 were only broken due to the arrival of Yorkist armies who routed off the attackers. Uh, whereas at uh, Annick in January 1463, uh, the Yorkists lifted the siege due to the arrival of the Scottish army, who they expected to attack them, but in the event um, they didn't. Um, similarly, defeat in battle often led to castles being surrendered. So the outcome of major battles often led to uh, garrisons surrendering um, after short sieges, if not outright. And uh, sometimes news of the outcome of battles also had this effect. So I mentioned the siege of the Tower of London in 1460 already. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the defenders of the tower surrendered after they learned of the defeat of the Lancastrian army at the Battle of Northampton. But having said which, this wasn't always the case though. So uh, we have examples of garrisons putting up long sieges even when they faced little prospect of being uh, relieved. So uh, for example, at the siege of Carisbrook Castle on the Isle of Wight, which took place from December 1460 until June 1461, which was an exceptionally long siege, yeah. uh, 
the Lancastrian defenders still held out for a further two months after the Yorkist victory at the Battle of Towton at uh, the end of March in 1461. Just going back to your, your second question concerning their frequency. Now, the siege of the castles as a whole were comparatively rare simply because garrisons were often capitulate rather than you know, offering resistance. They didn't think they had much of a chance of um, resisting. Mm. Or similarly, besiegers would only you know, bother to attack a place if they thought they had a good chance of capturing it. Uh, but that said, in the course of my book, I, um, I discovered more sieges of castles took place during the Wars of the Roses than um, has commonly been supposed. So I found firm evidence of 36 uh, sieges uh, taking place between 1455 oh, wow. and 1487 and evidence for possible further 16 that could have possibly taken place. That's a lot in a comparatively short period of time isn't it? Yeah certainly and I mean as I went you know I went through the um, the overview of it I suppose military yeah. activities only took place in sort of certain parts of that 30-year era um, yeah. and that said I think even that number is an underestimate because you know we've got big gaps in the evidence for this period. So, um, for example, I found out that a siege of Skipton Castle in Yorkshire took place in 1461. And I simply found it out because there's an entry in the accounts of the Lordship of Knaresborough uh, to a payment to soldiers who served at the command of the Earl of Warwick in besieging the castle. I mean, if it wasn't for that, finding that reference, the siege would be completely unknown so i think right. if anything yeah. more sieges took place than even i've been able to find out dan why do you you said then it's popularly kind of known about these sieges so you found this evidence is there a reason why that it wasn't really known before or is it just something that's not been looked researched in much depth on it's a combination of the two so on the one hand the wars of the roses is an unusual era for the frequency in which battles took place so okay. a large part of the middle ages um battles were comparatively rare and there's a lot of them. Secondly, because the late Middle Ages is seen as a period in which the military role of the castles were in decline and there is something to be said for that but I think it's been overemphasized. Uh, and finally I think because you know it hasn't been looked at in this much detail and because perhaps some of the sources for the second half of the 15th century aren't as good as earlier or later periods so you, I've had to you know really sort of delve into the archives to find this sort of material. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask, how have, you found, how have you found using the source base? Do you have any tips for our uh, listeners doing research on <laughs> <and> parcels? <laughs> well, I mean, I tend to specialise really in financial records. Okay. Um, which is probably not what you'd expect. But really. I guess, oh. I mean, yeah, I'm not on the surface, but I guess you can, you can see all the records, like what was bought for the house and kind of like renovations and stuff will be in the exactly. financial Exactly, yeah. Records, I mean, right? it's a really important part, I think, of military history as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. Ages, uh, because essentially, you know, that's where expenditures being accounted for yeah so I mean I've I did a lot of research in the National Archives um, looking at particularly the records of the English Exchequer um, and various um, lordships which are um, owned by the crowns so, yeah. um, for Wales and Chester so in terms of advice well I suppose you know <laughs> find out you know get to grips with your sources try to use as many as possible so even though I am I do sort of specialise in financial records. I did make use of um, narrative sources, such as chronicles and other sorts of um, printed materials. So, yeah, um, yeah so it's a combination, I suppose, of trying to have a, a wider base as possible of sources, but also to, you know, really, you know, carry out a lot of archival research as well, really try to find out as much as you can. Well, thank you very much for that. And as the final question I wanted to ask you, and we have to ask this, obviously, what is your favourite castle? Why? <laughs> um, I really love uh, Conwy Castle in North Wales. I don't know if you've heard of it. Oh, okay, yeah, I've heard of it. Not been there. 
I've yeah. Not, what's it called, Dan? Uh, Conwy, so C-O-N-W-Y. Right, I uh, the English it. spelling is C-O-N-W-A-Y. Okay. Oh, okay. So it's one of the great castles founded by Edward I in the late 13th century. <laughs> Olivia's uh, just obviously searched it and then her jaw has just <laughs> actually dropped <laughs> on the camera. <laughs> she's, she's absolutely yeah. in love with it. <laughs> so oh, I, I can see. Yeah, so I mean, <laughs> I mean, visually, it's beautiful, it's impressive, and you know, it's exactly how I picture a castle ought to look like in my head. Yeah, so definitely. Um, the ruins are in good condition, so it's great fun exploring the walls and towers. Um, and what also really sets it apart from so many other castles, and even the other castles of North Wales, is that the town walls survive, and because it was built as part of a planned castle and settlement at the yeah. same time. So when you go to Conway and you stand on the battlements, you can picture you know, how the medieval town sort of looked like from its extent. Um, and also it's a lovely part of the country. You've got um, mountains, forests and the sea, and it's like a really pretty town. So yeah. I really love it. Yeah. Oh, I can so see why. It's stunning. <laughs> I just want to talk about one other castle in Wales. I think you maybe know where I'm going with this. The I'm a Celeb one. Can you give us oh, any yeah. details on that? Because we've meant, you've mentioned <laughs> castles in Wales that are quite prominent. So... You know, are you like, can you give any details on the, I can't even know what it's called. Uh, to be honest, I can't remember off the top of my head. I mean, I can't pronounce it. Basically, it's, you know, a Gothic, like, revival castle. So I think okay. it's dates from the 19th century. Mm -hmm. um, so <laughs> I'm afraid it's not really my era, other than, you know, other than in that sort of 18th and 19th centuries, you had this revival and interest in uh, medieval architecture. So it kind of, Oh, um, reflects kind of at the time the interest you know of wealthy people in the medieval past so yeah it's not necessarily to my taste but you know it's a good thing in that they help to um, you know, preserve medieval heritage in fact definitely yeah it's interesting that even after all that time there had there was a, such a medieval revival as well mm. and that's quite nice to see that you know we can look at it today Oh, Dan, I wanted to ask as well, and I'm sorry I didn't put this question in advance because I just thought of it. Um, you've obviously studied in Southampton for a long time, and I always go into Southampton Centre, and people know this, there's castle walls, or there's ruins of castle walls there. And people always ask me, because I, they know I study history, what are they? And I can never give them an answer. The castle uh, walls in Southampton, what, do you, what can you tell me about that? Well, actually, most of them relate to the town walls, in fact. Right. So they... Most of them date from the, um, well, the second half of the 14th century onwards. Okay. Um, so you've got some earlier ones. So I think the Bargate dates from the 13th century. Yeah, yeah. And what really sets the sound apart is it has one of the best surviving set of medieval walls in England. Yeah, no, they're great. Um, you know, after York and Chester. Yeah. Um, and also, I mean, from my, my own interest in artillery, um, we've also got um, God's House Tower, which is near to Eastock. You know, right, that yeah, used yeah, to be yeah. where there was an archaeological museum yeah. a while back. And that's one of the earliest surviving artillery towers in the country, sort of dating from the early 15th century. Um, so no, I mean, Southampton is a great place for medieval history. Um, yeah, thank you. You've just given me some knowledge to take down the pub when we're allowed out again. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be a good one. Well, Dan, I feel like we've definitely learned a lot and we don't want to give too much away because we want our listeners to buy the book, obviously. Yes, we'll um, put the links on our Twitter account. Definitely. We would like to know from yourself, though, what got you into history? Well, I mean, I've always had a passion for history. I mean, just forever, as long as I can remember. Uh, I think my parents encouraged it, really, in that they bought me books, you know, took me to historical sites and museums, and I fell in love with the subject. And I think it appeals to me for two main reasons. I think, one, because the past is so exotic. 
and you know it's so enjoyable yeah. learning about the lives of people who had very different yeah, experiences yeah. ourselves mm. and the other aspect of it is it's a mystery yeah. uh, and what really yeah. makes me study history is try to discover what really happened so whether that's making discoveries in archives or yeah. interpreting evidence in a new way you know it's, it's the thing i'm most passionate about yeah so basically, you've got to be really nosy to be a historian. <laughs> you've got to want to know <laughs> absolutely yeah. everything. I know, I definitely am. If I, if I find like a thread, or like you say, or something you want to find out, you just want to know absolutely everything about the subject. And it's, it is just fascinating. So the, the next section we want to do, uh, just to round up, uh, is inspired by a podcast called The Good, The Bad and The Rugby. Um, and I'm going to ask you a set of questions. And I just want you to give your first answer, just straight off the bat, whatever you think. You ready? Go for it. <laughs> okay, first one. Who's your favourite historical figure of all time? Okay, it's really difficult to choose. I mean, I'm going to go with the Wars of the Roses theme. Okay. I'm going to say uh, Margaret of Anjou, who was um, Henry VI's queen. Okay. Uh, I think I just admire her basically because um, she came to England while she was a teenager to marry Henry VI and um, she had rather a hard time at things in that she faced hostility because she was a foreigner. Yeah. French foreigner and her gender. Uh, and later on, she was her reputation was really blackened by Yorkist propaganda. Right. Um, but I admire her because she was, you know, a really tireless champion of the Lancastrian yeah. cause, um, supporting. Do you her think the husband. propaganda was extra harsh because harsh because she was a woman as well? So they just. Oh yeah, I think so. Down. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. You, know, you know, her gender and you know the fact she was French. You know, it's it's really unfortunate combination, really. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And she oh, like, played him, yeah, and she played a major role in trying to maintain the Lancastrians when they went through all these. Um, yeah. Reversals in their fortunes. So. You soldiered um, on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so flip that question around then. Who's your least favourite figure? Okay, setting apart, you know, the really obvious answers, um, you know, people like Hitler and Stalin. <laughs> I was just yeah. going to say Hitler. <laughs> I mean, it's so hard not to choose them because, you know, they're like worst people in history. But um, I'm going to say in architectural terms, I'm going to take okay. a few people. One, Henry VIII for the dissolution Ooh. of the yes. 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 And Oliver Cromwell for his role in the destruction of so many fine castles. Oh, yes. yeah, that's, yeah, that's... I agree. I'm glad we've had something different like that. You know, it's a shame <laughs> that all these beautiful buildings were destroyed or ruined because of just some selfish acts, so... So, I mean, I think I'm kind of already guessing who you're going to say for this next one. But if you went on a road trip, which three people from history would you want in your car? Are you going to go for architects? That's what I was thinking. Ah, well, I've actually, I might surprise you then. Okay, first person is somebody you wouldn't have heard of because they're a really, really obscure individual. Okay. okay. Somebody called Godfrey Goykin. Oh, uh, was, uh, yeah, he was a very um, uh, obscure Dutch or German gunner who was in service in its crown in the first half of the 15th century. Nice. Now, I would pick him simply because we know so little about medieval gunners because they were such um, yeah. low-ranking you know, individuals. And mm. it'd be great to know something about his background, uh, what his skills were, what he got his training from, and what it'd be like to be a gunner in yeah. that era. Uh, my second person uh, is Richard III simply because I would love to know what happened to the princess in the tower. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, we'd love to know the end of the story. <laughs> exactly. I remember being taught it in school person. and it's like, oh, shocking, <laughs> scandalous. Uh, and then my third person, again, is somebody called uh, Aldrich Vitalis, who was a medieval chronicler and one of the okay. finest of the 12th century. And I think it's be fascinating to talk to him, hear about his stories, um, yeah. find out what his sorts He's of information good at telling. were. And, and learn about his writing technique. Yeah. Uh, of course, the downside of these choices is none of them know how to drive, so I'd have to do <laughs> uh, For them, they'd have to enjoy the, enjoy the wine without you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. Uh, and then final question then, what has been the best moment of your career so far? Well, it's tempting to say passing my Viva, but I'd actually say oh. uh, publishing my monograph. So my second book, Raw and Urban Gunpowder Weapons in Late Middle England. Oh. Um, because 
you know, it's a sa- substantial work of scholarship, if I dare yeah. say, you know. Of course um, you like to say. Plug it as well. Yeah, I would post yeah. well. And um, also because it effectively marked the end of my PhD project, which took seven yeah. years from starting oh, wow. PhD to getting it into yeah. print. So, uh, of course, if I'd known how long it would have taken, I'm not sure if I would have <laughs> started yeah. it or not. But, um, you know, it's, it's great so good. to yeah. off, yeah. Derek, can we just oh. get another plug for that? For seven years, I think people need to know exactly <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what that was again. That was the Royal and Urban Gunpowder Weapons of Medieval England, am I right? Late medieval England, yeah. Brilliant. Okay, everyone, make sure you get that one because Dan didn't get himself seven years bad luck. He said something good <laughs> luck for everyone to buy it. <laughs> Exactly. Well, thank you so, so much for talking to us today, Dan. It's been so great to have you on. Yeah, likewise, it's been great talking to you. Thank you oh, so thank much. You, Dan. Yes, you can come to our Twitter account for all of the links um, to Dan's wonderful books. That was Dr. Dan Spencer talking to us about his book, The Castles in the War of the Roses. Join us next week when we're joined by Lindsay Powell talking to us about his book, Marcus Agrippia. In the meantime, don't forget to like, share, retweet, follow, and get in touch with us for our Twitter account at Kakiwalaki. Until next time, I'm Olivia Smith. And I'm Phoebe Stiles. Thanks for listening. This is Kakiwalaki signing off.